Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush, and on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the goings-on at the Treasury, and you ask us, why have the police been cracking down on anti-monarchy protesters so harshly? Tom Scholar, the permanent secretary of the Treasury since 2016, was sacked by Kwasi Kwarteng, the new chancellor. That was a week ago, but there's so much that has happened in between that we haven't actually discussed it on the podcast yet. And the repercussions are still being felt now. A number of high profile figures, former top civil servants sort of are coming out one by one and condemning the move. Former cabinet secretary Bob Kerslake is one of the latest. And then there was a former Home Office permanent secretary, David Normington, who wrote a letter to The Times saying this suggests the government are not interested in impartial advice and intend to surround themselves with yes men and women. And Harry, you wrote a piece, a very good piece uh, on the New Statesman website this week looking into this, which I think all our listeners should catch up on if they haven't read it. What was actually behind this move? Why did they decide to, to get rid of him? Well, it's still unclear. The comment from the civil servant you just mentioned there is perhaps a little unfair. We don't actually know who's going to replace Tom Scholar yet. And in the interim, the acting permanent secretaries are his deputies essentially. So not a great deal has actually changed day to day. I think that's important to emphasize. And, you know, during the next couple of weeks, which will be a crucial time for the Chancellor, he'll actually just be working with Scholar's team. Now, you could say that's quite strange because he's he's going to have alienated them, having just fired their boss. But in terms of what's behind it, Kuateng's team tell me that, that they think they have the right as a new administration wanting a new approach to come in and change the civil servant in charge of the department civil servants I spoke to who did the job before scholar like Gus O'Donnell and, and Nick McPherson who both ran the treasury as Sec before him say well the whole point of us is that we're meant to be able to work for anyone and indeed we have worked for anyone you know both of them joined the treasury in the 80s and, and they saw the different orthodoxies that sort of came and went over time and their view would be that scholar is someone with a lot of experience who could handle anything that Kuateng wanted him to do but Look, there's a, there's a line of people inside the Tory party who think that Scholar and others represent a treasury view which, which stifles growth. So that's why they've got rid of him. Okay. And we know that Liz Truss and many of her allies like Kwasi Kwarteng for years have been pretty robust, shall we say, about the civil service. Um, I think she backs cutting it by 90,000 jobs, right? So is this a continuation and perhaps an, uh, an amplification of this confrontational relationship between 
the Tory government and its mandarins? Potentially. I do think, look, there are interesting questions to ask about the civil service. It is quite strange that Unlike in the commercial world, as a minister, you go in and you can't choose the staff who operate the department. It's quite a hard way to run a company if you imagine inheriting a team that you then had to direct. So I am sympathetic to the idea that you as a minister would want to choose who you work with. But people like Gus O'Donnell will say, well, you go in and if you don't get on with the civil servant, then perhaps a transition can be arranged. What you don't do is fire someone before you've worked with them. And that's what Kwarteng's done. So that's where I think the public outcry has come from. Yeah, and I think, I can't remember who it was in your piece, but someone made the point that, you know, if you want to change the direction of economic policy in a country, who do they think that job is other than Kwasi Kwarteng, the Chancellor's job? Is is his appointment not enough to change that direction? Well, maybe not, because it's so so hard for us to judge, isn't it, exactly how how the Treasury or any department really works unless you're in the institution and you see what the reality is of you giving a direction and then it being carried out. And and this debate is really just divided between the civil servants who say we do our work impartially and and of of course shouldn't fire us. And a few other voices, like I'll mention Lord Agnew, who was until recently a uh, government minister, essentially brought in by Michael Gove across the cabinet office in the treasury, who boldly wrote a piece in the Times this week saying scholars should definitely have been fired and that there are many good civil servants, but he's not one, which was an unusually intemperate intervention. And I just think finally to say, you know, Kwarteng hasn't shown any record of being a sort of Dom Cummings-like revolutionary in the comments he's made. So it's quite surprising that he's come and done this. He's actually quite a smooth operator usually. And this is really what's defining his first week or so in the role. Lots of people have said that the sacking of Scholar was a Trumpian phenomenon over the past few days. And I think that can sort of just neglect what's happened or the relationship between the government and the civil service over the past hundred years. There's always been that tension there. There's always been that suspicion from politicians that the civil servants aren't going to implement their policy, whether it's, you know, Labour in the 1930s think that the civil service will side with the Bank of England and the city and not going to implement their socialist policies. You know, we've got to look back to the 66 Fulton Committee who again looked at this these issues and, and criticised the civil service for being to generalists. We also had, you know, the, the 93 Fulton report. So there's, there's consistent evidence of attention between politicians and the civil service. So I think we need to see it uh, within that history. Rachel, what's your take on it? It's interesting, isn't it? Because the whole campaign message of Liz Truss was to break with Treasury orthodoxy. And now this seems to be one of the sort of ways that they're signalling that they're doing that. But in a way, it's tricky. It's tricky for Labour, isn't it? Because... <laughs> While Liz Truss is sort of taking the risk to shake things up, surely that's what Labour would want as well in a way, because the way that the Treasury has been for years in terms of insisting on balancing the books and, and, you know, the debt and deficit obsession, you know, it has coincided with over a decade of really poor growth. And, you know, we we basically have a high inequality, low growth economy. And there's no sign of that changing. And there wasn't really under Rishi Sunak's chancellorship either. So, you know, how does Labour respond to these kind of radical moves? So I think there's sort of a a few elements to this. There's a part of me that wonders that sort of 
Liz Truss, as you say, part of her campaign was to shake up Treasury orthodoxy. But then we're also going into this period where we know all the news on the economy is going to be really terrible. There's probably going to be a recession that, you know, inflation's far outstripping wages, life's going to get harder for a lot of people. So you wonder how much of this sort of attacking the Treasury and, and as she did with the Bank of England, she really targeted the Bank of England as well. You kind of wonder if some of it's sidestepping blip for political decisions rather than a big bid to shake things up. But it's also kind of not clear what Kwarteng and Truss are kind of trying to achieve with it. Because as sort of Harry mentioned there, the job of civil servants is to give ministers impartial advice. And surely when you look ahead and you are thinking about how you manage the economy, you're going to need impartial advice and civil servants who are brave enough to tell you when something could potentially go wrong. You know, as a minister, you can ignore that advice, but you do need to have a sort of robust civil service that is able to, is able to tell a minister what they think. And I think some of the concerns that retired civil servants have said is kind of that this will have a chilling effect and she won't necessarily get the same impartial advice that she might have got. But I think, yeah, all politicians are trying to set themselves against, you know, the orthodoxy of the of the last decade potentially longer because they want to have something positive to say about the economy. But that is the the hard fact here is that post-Brexit and given the other headwinds, including the fallout from the COVID pandemic, that it's just going to be hard for any party to achieve growth in these circumstances. Hmm. I think there is anxiety within the political world that it, it is just another sign of you know, you, you label something as the blob. In this case, it's sort of like the economic sort of norm blob. So you have like the sidestepping of the OBR in terms of the mini budget that she wants to announce soon. And you mentioned the attacking of the Bank of England. That was mainly during the campaign. I think that's been slightly toned down recently. And now this, you know, attacking top civil servants. And it does seem to sort of fit a pattern that we've had before Liz Truss's premiership of sidestepping those norms that are supposed to act as checks and balances on on ministers' decisions. So I think that's where the anxiety comes in. But there's, there's even more controversy coming out of the Treasury today, which we should also discuss. And Freddie, you wrote about this in Morning Call this morning, which is our political daily newsletter that you should all subscribe to if you don't already. And that's that the government may be planning to lift the cap on bankers' bonuses. So that's a cap that came in in 2014 following the financial crash, isn't it? And it's an EU rule that bankers' bonuses can only go up to, is it double? Yeah, it's double. If they have shareholder approval, it's double. If not, then it's only 100%. So yeah, this is an EU rule. Only 100%, of course. Yeah, (laughs) sounds great. It came in in 2014, yeah, from the EU. So this is part of the government's attempt to try and prove that there's a benefit from Brexit. I'm not sure how well that's going to go down with people during the cost of living. Johnson looked into it himself in June and he sort of backtracked when he realised, oh, OK, we've got inflation, we've got our higher bills, perhaps I should not even not give more money to bankers at this time. I think the one of the worrying things was that it sort of demonstrated what the government thinks wrong with the economy at the moment. They think mm. bankers <laughs> not having enough money is the, uh, the key thing we need to solve at the moment. So I don't think that was particularly uh, reassuring but it's been considered by past Tory governments in recent times, right? George Osborne launched a legal bid to try and overturn it back in 2014. So they've never been pro it. And, you know, they've always thought it was an interference from the EU and didn't think it was abided by EU law. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's no surprise that they're against it. And they say it's not like we're saying we should tax them more. It's just about capping their pay. So 
Yeah, I mean, it's no surprise, but then you've got to look at it. What are they trying to achieve here? They're trying to attract more bankers from around the world to the city, okay? But then also you've got to look at the politics and say, how is this going to come across? Is it going to help the Conservatives' image as a party of the rich? Uh, which, once you see it within the context of Liz Truss's other policies, corporation tax cut, the national insurance cut, the refusal to increase the windfall tax, once you put it in that context, then we can sort of see a little bit of a pattern and where their priorities lie. Yeah, to me, it seems like, a, I think we mentioned in the in the discussion about the Treasury earlier, it betrays a lack of confidence, doesn't it, in Liz Truss's in in Liz Truss's mind about how she thinks the how she thinks the country should work. It's almost like retreating to that reliance on financial services and the City of London being at the heart of the UK economy, which seems to me the opposite of levelling up. It's kind of putting a, a, a faith in trickling down over effort being put into levelling up. Yeah, completely. I mean, it, it sort of goes against levelling up. It's about bringing even more money to the southeast and to London rather than trying to redistribute it around the economy. I know we've already spoken about this on the podcast before, but this is another sign that Truss's government is a complete separation from what Johnson represented and what he tried at times to implement. So yeah, it's just it's another one of those things. It's not going to massively change the economy. It's not going to be the flagship policy going into the next election, but it is another sign that they are trying to cut taxes for the rich, cut taxes for corporations in the hope, they say, to grow the economy. But we've got to remember again that all this is funded through through debt. Mm. And Harry, what's your insight into this? I mean, you've been speaking to Kwarteng's team about the um, the story about the Treasury. But I mean, did you pick up on any of this, any of what's going on behind this decision? No, I haven't actually spoken to them about this yet. They're, they're sort of ple- pleading the fifth over the Queen's death as a reason not to justify bad decisions. Which is uh, an effective tactic. Which a lot of politicians are doing, I must say, at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I picked up on that frustration in your, in your morning call, Freddie. <laughs> yeah, I was the secret journalist. <laughs> <laughs> They'll get back to us next year. But I think, look, we're, we're just, it's exasperating, really. If you've, you know, looked at any statistics over the last 40 years to realise that we're just going through another government that is planning to give lots of money to those who have it in the expectation that will lead to growth. As any economist will say, if you give money to the poorer half of the income distribution, they're much more likely to spend it, which will grow the economy because they don't have a huge amount and, and they need to spend it on all sorts of things they have demands for. If you give money to the rich, they'll much more like to save it. And so that won't go back into the economy. So just pound for pound, any tax cut or benefit that is going to the rich rather than the poor is going to be less helpful to growth. So that's really the starting point we should all come from. And so when you hear this uh, latest round of plans to help the rich make more money, you do think, well, we've seen this play before. Hmm. And Rachel, will it be politically damaging? Because I remember when one of Ed Miliband's top attack lines against the sort of Cameron coalition government was tax cut for millionaires. And it didn't really seem to, not to use the word cut again, but it didn't really seem to cut through. And, you know, from a lot of the work that I've done into public attitudes towards wages, salaries and class even, people are pretty relaxed about people earning a lot of money. Do, is this really the sort of gift to Labour that some commentators are su- suggesting it is? Well, let's wait and see. I think the sort of context to it would be, you know, I think when, when Boris Johnson brought this policy up in June, the way Pierre Starman responded was sort of like, oh, 
uh, theorized for bankers, but a peer cut for district nurses. That when you look at the context of, you know, lots of public sector workers going on strike because inflation means that they're taking a peer cut. And when people see, you know, their weekly shop getting more expensive, I wonder if the whole backdrop to that argument being played out again may have changed slightly and that it could end up being politically damaging for the government. But I, I agree with you and that you, I'm often surprised that these things don't make people more frustrated than they, they actually do. All right, Harry and Rachel, I'm going to let you go and carry on badgering politicians who won't tell you anything. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Edward Docks on the death of Boris the Clown. When did the booing start? He was never exactly sure. A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. One presenter told me that producers had taken to booking their own parents. May Robson on why women's football is the more beautiful game. Like most of the England squad, the Euro 2022 captain Leah Williamson can't afford not to have a plan B. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask, you Ask Us. Us. So we've got a question from Jack from Newcastle. Thanks, Jack. He asks, why have the police been cracking down on anti-monarchy protesters so harshly? Is this a result of the Police Crime Courts and Sentencing Bill, which is now an act, actually, a controversial bit of legislation, Rachel, that you covered in depth while it was going through Parliament? There have been several instances of police arresting or questioning Republican protesters in London, Oxford and Edinburgh seem to be the main spots where this has happened. I'll just give a few examples. A woman arrested by police in Edinburgh for holding up a sign saying, imperialism, abolish the monarchy. Oh, I didn't know um, we were allowed to say that. I will. <laughs> uh, I don't know whether we're allowed to say that. I can just see our producers smiling nervously. No, I, 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 um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, keep, I'll keep that in mind for further, further broadcasting. 
<laughs> or ardent monarchists, indeed. But yes, uh, this was just before the reading of the proclamation for the new king and she was charged for a breach of the peace. And then there was a barrister holding a blank sign in Parliament Square who said that he was threatened with arrest under the Public Order Act by a police officer if he dared to write not my king on the sign. And then there was a man who heckled Prince Andrew in Edinburgh as the hearse went past who was charged in connection with a breach of the peace. I won't shout out what he said. And then there was also someone arrested, then de-arrested in Oxford on suspicion of an offence under the Public Order Act. He shouted who elected him when the proclamation was being read out. So what's going on? Because I was I was trying to work out whether these people were being arrested under the new legislation, which, as I've said, was very controversial. You can be arrested under it for being a public nuisance, I think. Is that right, Rachel? Uh, yeah, you can be arrested under it, uh, even if you're a single person protesting, if the police think that you are too noisy or causing inconvenience. So, yeah, it, it's very sweeping and very broad. I think in all those instances that we've heard about so far, my understanding is that none of those actually have been charged under the new legislation, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. They've all been under other laws, either public order, Section 5 offence, the ones in England, and the ones in Edinburgh are under a Scottish law, breach of the peace, which is a slightly separate thing. So it's almost worrying in a way that we've got this new legislation that is more draconian than anything we've ever seen before, mm. but we didn't even need it to have these crackdowns on, on protests that we've seen so far. I'm going to say now, because I'm going to be very negative and very critical about the police for the rest of this podcast, um, <laughs> it is worth pointing out that there are uh, hundreds of thousands of people up and down the country and lots of police officers dealing with these situations that are sort of potentially quite volatile. And we have only heard of, I think, four or five or six incidents so far. So I, I want to sort of a shout out to the vast majority of police and police forces who do seem to be handling this well. But now we can talk about the examples of the ones who are that, handling it badly. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't that only because we've only had four or five instances of actual protest? The level of protest has been quite low. I was trying to be even handed. I know, I'm really sorry. I just thought... <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, you make a good point And really, basically, it seems that people are being arrested for being impolite, really, because yeah. the threshold for the Public Order Act is threatening or abusive language that causes someone else harassment, alarm or distress or engages in disorderly behaviour, which seems quite broad yeah. and subjective. Yeah, uh, and in Scotland, I've got the definition here. It's uh, a breach of the peace is conduct severe enough to cause alarm to ordinary people and threaten serious disturbance to the community. Conduct which does present as genuinely alarming and disturbing in its context to any reasonable people. So it's very context specific. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about the way these offences are kind of loosely defined is it's not so much about what you say or what you do, but it's about in the situation that you say or do it, is there a risk to public safety? Yeah. And if we take, for example, the, the the guy who heckled Prince Andrew, you can see members of the crowd sort of turning on him. And it's kind of quite clear that the police do need to intervene there because there is a disturbance, there is the risk of violence. However, they don't try and break it up and give him a, a safe space cordoned off to have his little counter protest. They arrest him. And that, I think, is an example of where the balance is very much not in 
protecting people's rights to to protest. It's in shutting it down. Yeah, and uh, Jack Straw, the former Home Secretary, spoke about this the other day and he sort of made the same distinction but just in the other way. He said, well, of course the police have to intervene because otherwise you're going to get a disturbance and a fracas between people in the crowds. Yes. Completely missing the point where police should be protecting the protest from the the crowd that's the whole point because enabling them to do their protest while keeping the peace rather than taking away the protesters so yeah it's a similar thing but he's got it i think completely the wrong way around yeah but what's what's actually happening here because i think it's rattled police forces hasn't yeah. it because the national police chiefs council has now said it's issued guidance to all police forces in the country to strike the right balance the met has made a point of saying it's making it clear to officers that the public absolutely have a right to protest so clearly they know that that balance wasn't being struck but is it that in moments of sort of high emotion like this and like you say a lot of people out on the streets quite an unusual context. This is where freedom of speech is most at risk. You wrote a piece analysing that theory, didn't you? Yeah, we spoke about it as well last week. I think, as Rachel spoke about, the vagueness of the laws puts so much power within the policeman's hands, which means that their behaviour will also vary given the context. And that means that in situations like this, when patriotic fever or sentiment is at exceptionally high levels, you're going to get a different response, which isn't very good for the protection of rights if it's completely dependent on whether there is a, you know, a constitutional crisis or a war or what have you and it's and particularly those are the moments when protest and dissent and disputation is even more important because they're the times of real change and uh, political importance mm, and anti-monarchy protest is as old as the monarchy itself yep. really so, <laughs> so it what, is a rich tradition one of the things that i am quite surprised about you said uh that the police have now Issued issued guidance of, of how officers should react. I'm very surprised that they didn't get training on this beforehand yeah. because mm. we know that preparations for the death of the Queen have been underway for about a exactly, decade. Exactly. All the planning, who's going to do what, how it's going to work, where things are going to happen. Why weren't they being briefed on this? Because it should have been very, very obvious that most people love the Queen. You know, Republican sentiment is a minority opinion, but it's a fairly substantial majority. It hovers at about between 20 and 25 percent you are going to get anti-royalist protests so how do you deal with it and it doesn't do the monarchy it doesn't do king charles which is still really weird to say (laughs) it doesn't do king charles any favors to have the the first days of his new reign punctuated by what lots of people will see as attacks on on free speech and they are attacks on on free speech so i'm kind of surprised about it on that front i also want to put what we're seeing in context of the last couple of years. So we read out those definitions of those previous um, order offences mm. and they are, they have always been very vague and we have this idea, I think because we absorb a lot of American culture, that the yeah. right to protest and free speech is really strong and very British principle and actually it, it, it it's not really. <laughs> um, the police have always been able to, to get involved in, in demonstrations and stuff but Two things I think have really sort of tipped the balance. One of them actually is is COVID and the huge amount of new legislation and powers handed to the police to police everyday ordinary behaviour. And we saw during COVID, police obviously under tremendous strain, but sometimes they didn't interpret the guidance correctly. They didn't really know what the law was. There was actually a police federation report that showed that officers didn't necessarily understand the law. And so you end up with weird situations like two women being arrested for going for a walk with coffee Mm. or somebody... You know, Derbyshire police sending drones out to... Monitor dog walkers. And and, and hikers. And and that was all really weird. 
then you had the vigil for Sarah Everett, who we know was was caused by a, a man who was a serving police officer, and the Met Police denied the people trying to organise that vigil that the right to hold it, which a court has ruled unlawful. I think it's been appealed twice and it's been ruled unlawful all, all times. Um, but the police reaction to that was basically if we decide it's not okay it's not okay it doesn't really matter what the law says now at the same time as that vigil was going on MPs were debating the new policing bill which gives them even more sweeping powers and more discretion to decide what's appropriate and what isn't and the concerns that were raised by civil liberties campaigners and and lawyers and even to be fair some free speech campaigners on on the right as well although not as many as you would think but the concern raised was if you hand all these powers and this discretion to police officers, there's a risk that they will make decisions either based on what they, the police, personally think is right, which is what you saw with the Sarah Everard vigil. They didn't like a big vigil that was really anti-police because a police officer had killed a woman. Or they are going to take their lead from the public mood or direction of whatever MPs, whatever the government does or doesn't like. And then you're in a situation where a protest can only go ahead if it has the kind of establishment support, which is kind of the opposite of protest. Protests are meant to be anti-establishment. They're meant to be annoying and disruptive. And if you say, yeah, you've got a right to protest, as long as the government is with you on that, you don't really have that right at all. Yeah. And this new policing bill that came in that we've been discussing was born out of the disruption of the Extinction Rebellion activism that kind of shut down London a number of times. And that's a really dangerous way of uh, policymaking, isn't it? If you're responding to events that you personally find disruptive or ideologically distasteful, and then you build legislation off the back of it, which is kind of how public order legislation has been built over the decades, reacting to sort of raves and anything that has caused the government trouble. But really, the, all eyes are on the new Met Commissioner as well. You mentioned the Sarah Everard vigil and Mark Rowley, the new um, Metropolitan Police Commissioner, was sworn in on Monday to sort of a week of quite bad headlines for the Met. So this heavy handed dealing with anti-royal protesters, that reflects some of the mistakes the Met made in terms of the Sarah Everard vigil, some coronavirus laws, and also it's heavy handed dealing with extinction rebellion protesters. And then you also have the case of Chris Carber, who's who was killed by a firearms officer. The family, you know, was kept in in the dark about whether or not the officer in question would be suspended while they're being investigated. Just doesn't seem to have been dealt with particularly sensitively and of course his death again a black man's death comes at the hands of a metropolitan police officer so it does seem like the same old met at the moment and then in general you know nationally crime detection and charge rates have fallen over the past five years if you're burgled or if you have something stolen you know good luck to you basically because crimes just aren't being solved that is not necessarily mark Rowley, the new metropolitan police commissioner's fault but it is something that labor will be using a lot. I think it will form part of their conference message as well. Anti-social behaviour has gone up everywhere you visit in the country when you go out reporting, as mentioned. And so, you know, it kind of seems like a lot of crime has essentially been decriminalised. Yeah, I think crime as well is going up in terms of voters' priorities. And as you say, I think uh, Starm is already mentioning it quite a lot in his speeches. He'll speak about windfall tax uh, and and economic issues, but then he'll also make sure to say that we need to keep our community safe and we need to address crime. I think 
some of that is down to funding and some of that is down to police numbers, which are things that the Conservative government doesn't really want to talk about because it was the previous Conservative government that cut the funding and, and, and cut those numbers. And yeah, every so often we get a ridiculous story such as that, that, that journalist whose laptop was stolen and he was tracking it and he was able to track exactly where it was or people who had their bike stolen, their car stolen, and they know exactly where it is and they go to the police and the police don't have the resources to handle it. Some of it is due to the Home Office being much more directive about what they say the police should be focusing on, which leaves the police less time and, and, and fewer resources to focus on kind of everyday mm. crime. But I think with the Met in particular, there has been an erosion of trust that's been built up over many, many years. But you saw it with the, first of all, the Sarah Everard killing and then the response to the vigil. You also saw it in the, the Met's reaction to a, a serial killer who was murdering gay men and they completely botched that investigation in a way that I can't even summarise because it is it, it's sort of almost too outrageous to be able to go go read up on that if you haven't if you haven't read about that case. And now the the killing of Chris Carber that you were discussing. There is just this sense that the Met acts or has been acting to protect itself and its own interests and its own officers. And whenever something goes wrong, and stuff does go wrong with policing all the time, it's a very stressful and complex field. But whenever something goes wrong, the initial reaction is to protect the officers and protect the force. And I think what is getting missed is the idea that the point of the Met Police is actually to protect Londoners and, mm-hmm. and the public. And British policing is based on this idea of policing by consent and having public trust. And if you if you lose that, if you start to view the public as potential criminals and public acts that are inconvenient, you, you have the mindset of, well, it's probably illegal unless I say it is not illegal, then that erodes very, very quickly. And it's great that we have a, a new Met Commissioner, because Cressida Dick was she'd clearly lost the support and the confidence of of the public but it's very difficult to turn that around when you have a culture and an institution that basically thinks its job is to protect itself rather than to protect the public. Yes, and that's exactly what they've been doing with this firearms officer. It took them a week to suspend them. I don't know whether it's a he or her, so I'm saying them. It shows how little information that we've actually been given. But um, yeah, it took them a week to do that and the communications with the family were, were appalling and it, it is really unsurprising perhaps but very depressing to see that when a new commissioner has come in on on his first week that kind of attitude to protect our own before we protect the public hasn't changed no and and interesting when, when they did suspend the officer i think the statement actually said part of the reason was because of the public action to it so it's kind of they they are aware of what the problems are they are aware of how this looks but still acting very slowly and and still I think a a real lack of empathy or awareness of how these events do play out if you are a member of the public and, and not a police officer. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Harry Lambert, Rachel Wearmouth, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Cunliffe. We're produced by Mae Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to leave us a nice review and subscribe. And if you want to send a question in to You Ask Us, email podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.